0: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kadic. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart. We are a left-wing show about ideas, about populism, and about the politics of academia. Today, we look at the protests in Cuba. Thousands are rising up against shortages in power, in food, and in medicine. But a little perspective is necessary here. Most of these economic hardships are the result of a crippling U.S. embargo. This crime, nobody is really considering stopping it. President Obama did put a brief pause on, but when Donald Trump came into office, he reversed those directions. When Biden replaced him, he stayed with the playbook. But for me, most worryingly, it's these rumblings of regime change. It's clear the U.S. still thinks it can have its way in the hemisphere. The mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, told Fox News that the U.S. has every right to affect regime change. And so I think the U.S. has a vested interest and a right uh, to intervene on behalf of the Cuban people, but also on behalf of the United States and creating an. Inter- Later, Suarez actually said the U.S. needs to consider airstrikes. He compared it to Panama or Kosovo. It's not just this mayor. Congressman Anthony Sabatini says that Cuba should be given an ultimatum. He says that they must transition the government, quote, away from communism or be prosecuted and executed thereafter. Senator Marco Rubio says if this doesn't merit action, what does? Congressperson Val Deming says the White House must move swiftly. Freedom shall and must prevail. This is an old playbook, but I don't think it's going to work. People do not want regime change, not in the United States, for sure. And they can't even get the job done if they tried. Look how dismal the effort was in Venezuela. But perhaps this story and all these rumblings of regime change isn't really about politics abroad. Perhaps it's more about politics at home because bashing on Cuba is an opportunity to bash on socialism, as the Fox News anchors are so wont to do. We have reached out to Bernie Sanders and other members of Congress to get a response from them, knowing that they have pushed some of the very socialist policies um, that have led to the pain and
1: suffering of the Cuban people. We have not heard back, nor has Bernie Sanders put out any public statement on this yet as of the beginning of this segment right now.
0: Perhaps it's no coincidence, just last month there was a new poll, and it showed that support for capitalism is plummeting among young people, even among Republicans. In just two years, support for capitalism dropped over 15 points among Gen Z Republicans, from 81% to 66%. Overall, young people are now more likely to have a negative view of capitalism than a positive one. 44% 44% of young people have the negative view, and 42 have the positive one. Support for socialism is still overall negative, 41% positive, 54% negative, but the devil here is in the details. Because when you ask people about specific policy directions, they skew left. Like, if you ask them if the government should pursue policies that address economic inequality, two-thirds agree even a strong majority of young Republicans. That is a big change. So for me, it is no wonder that Republican senators and congresspeople are red-baiting. I don't know, just a thought. When your own economic orthodoxy has very little popular legitimacy, perhaps it's a convenient distraction to look at Cuba's struggles, even if you created them. But it's not just these U.S. polls that Republicans want you to forget. It's what's happening in the entire area. In Latin America, in the Caribbean, and in South America, there have been enormous popular protests all over, with very little coverage. These are all much more significant than what we're seeing in Cuba. Like in Colombia, Chile, Brazil, Peru, and Haiti. In Haiti, of course, you know about the recent assassination, but what you might not know is that this regime has been facing enormous popular unrest since 2018. Yes, right wing, neoliberal, US backed governments, they are on the outs. And today we focus on one Peru. Pedro Castillo is a peasant school teacher. He walked around in a Stetson hat carrying a giant pencil, he had a very simple campaign. He said, no more poor people in a rich country. That campaign worked. He won in a squeaker. Now the opposition is trying Trumpian tactics to throw out ballots, to invalidate the election, and even to bribe officials. But none of this is going to work. Just about everyone else you ask is recognizing Castillo as the legal victor. It is just a matter of time before it's made official. To give you a real sense of Pedro Castillo's platform, perhaps it's best to hear from him. He's done very few interviews with international press, but I did find one in Jacobin, with Medea Benjamin, shortly before the election. So, Pedro Castillo, in his own words, slightly edited for time and read by our producer, Jay. This year, we are
2: celebrating the Bicentennial of Peru as a republic, yet after 200 years, we still have a high level of illiteracy, and the homes of my parents and neighbours don't have electricity, lights, or running water. There's a totally abandoned health centre where once in a while a nurse comes by, and maybe you can find a bandage or a few pills for all the families. People there have nothing, they are totally abandoned by the state. That's why there have been so many protests. There are fewer people out in the streets recently because of the pandemic, but people have been out for years demanding justice and shouting that all politicians should resign. We have a Congress with almost no approval or legitimacy. Our institutions do not care about the great needs of the country. There are many open wounds in our society that go unaddressed. There are the female victims who were forcibly sterilized under the regime of Alberto Fujimori. People massacred by government militias, such as the young students from the university in La Cantuta, or people in Barrios Altos. There are mothers and girls who are victims of violence. With the pandemic, it has become clearer to people that we need structural change in the country. The problem of the pandemic in Peru isn't just a health problem, it is a structural problem. Peru is such a wealthy country, but so much of the wealth such as copper, gold and silver goes to foreigners. At the ports, you see an endless stream of trucks taking away the resources of the country. And just 200 meters away, you see a barefoot child, a child with tuberculosis, a child full of parasites. That is why we must renegotiate the contracts with big companies so that more of the profits remain in Peru and benefit the people. We must re-examine the free trade agreements we have signed with other countries so that we can promote local businesses. As I have said throughout the campaign, no more poor people in a rich country. I give you my word as a teacher.
0: Today on Darts and Letters, we look at the vote for Pedro Castillo. Aldo Madariaga is a Chilean political scientist. He writes about the intellectual history of neoliberalism. We'll talk about how this set of ideas has changed over time in surprising ways. But Peru is on the front lines of resistance.
3: There are quotes, for example, by Hayek or by Buchanan himself. They say, I prefer a dictatorship that rules with respect for economic liberties than a democracy that doesn't respect economic liberties.
0: So it's very clear. But before we look at Pedro Castillo, we look at the modern political history of Peru with Peruvian historian Natalia Sobrevia. All that and more on darts and letters. Stay tuned. We need your support. If you like what we do, I want you to chip in. Please go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. We are trying to build an international show. Not an American show, and not a Canadian show, but an international one. Now, if you look at the left media sphere, you'll see most of it focuses on the U.S. For good reason. They are the global hegemon. But that also means that their influence is global. So you have to look outside of it. Now, of course, we are Canadian. But even here in Canada, much of the left media focuses on the U.S., Or if it doesn't, it sort of overcorrects and focuses exclusively on Canada. We don't wanna do that either. We believe in an international left and therefore we are trying to build an international show. We wanna look at how ideas travel and explore where we have common cause and where we can build global solidarity. Over the past few weeks, you've heard stories focused on Europe, on Canada, yes, on the United States and now on South America. But of course, that's not the whole globe. We want to do more, and we want to do better. For that, we need your support, so please pitch in. Thanks to our newest patron, Wolfgang Tolkien. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Okay, on with the show. Natalia Sobrevia is a professor of Latin American history at the University of Kent. I called her up to get the historical context for this most recent election. It pitted Kieko Fujimori against Pedro Castillo. Kieko is daughter to former President Alberto Fujimori.
1: I think we need to begin, well, with the rise of Fujimori in 1990. I think that's a good moment because there are some parallels between Castillo and Fujimori about being outsiders or people that are not usually regarded as traditional politicians. So they do share that. And it's an interesting kind of twist, a historical twist, that now his daughter is the representative of the politics or traditional politics, and Pedro Castillo is a newcomer.
0: So what made him uh, Alberto Fukimori an outsider? What was his background? What is his background?
1: Well Alberto Fujimori uh, was uh, the vice chancellor of a university. He was the the main academic leader of the National Agrarian University in Peru. And he had a, a life in university politics. And in 1990 he ran for president never thinking that he would become president, thinking that he might reach a a position in Congress because he could run both for Senate and for the presidency. And uh, he thought that he'd maybe become more visible if he ran as a presidential candidate, and he did. And in 1990, the country was imploding. It was in the midst of a very deep uh, economic crisis, And also the shiny path guerrilla had been on the rise for a very long time. And it seemed in in 1990 that there was a good chance that they might win. So the country was in dire straits in in 1990. And the candidate that represented traditional politics, Nobel Literature Prize winner Mario Vargas Llosa, a, a very famous writer at the time, decided to throw his hat into the ring. He was also not really from a political background, but he decided that he would go and represent the traditional political parties and the idea that there should be a neoliberal change in the economy. And Fujimori rose up from nowhere, promising that he wouldn't do that. And as soon as he got elected, he did implement the Vargas plan, the neoliberal plan, because he didn't have any plan.
0: He ran against the neoliberal
1: platform? The only reason he got elected was because he ran against the neoliberal platform. People in Peru didn't want it, didn't want to have what was known as the economic shock. They didn't want to face to the neoliberal system. And the left is very strong. And also because of the voting system in Peru, where it's compulsory, this skews elections to have more of the poorer sectors of society voting because they can't afford the fine if they don't vote. So the Peruvian electorate tends to be more left-leaning.
0: That's fascinating. So what was it that accounted for his rightward uh, shift?
1: Well, Fujimori didn't have a plan and he never thought he'd be elected, but he was a very ambitious man. And as soon as he got into power, he thought, well, now I'm here. Now, i how am I going to remain in power? How am I going to build a political career from this? And, and he was very savvy. He surrounded himself with all the people that had supported Vargas Llosa and very quickly turned to the right. But the other thing he did is he went even further to the right. So he was also allied with very conservative groups in the army, and he had the backing of his intelligence um, head, Vladimir Montesinos, and he decided that he couldn't carry out his whole plan of uh, political control under the democratic system, and that's when he closed Congress. And on the 5th of April of 1992, he received widespread condemnation for it, and that's why he called a new Congress to be elected, And they wrote a new constitution in 1993. And that's how he he managed to secure his position. Now, he's a very popular president. He was a populist, but also very... Uh, supported by the elites, the the the, the people with uh, money and power, his neoliberal reform uh, led to the privatization of most of the industries in Peru, most of the uh, services, and and there was a huge number of people that became extremely rich through this process, which was a very corrupt process as well.
0: After this, you said there was a new constitution written in 1993. What? I saw in some of the interviews that Castillo talks a lot about rewriting that constitution or parts of it. What is substantively, what what changed in 1993 with that constitution?
1: There were three main things that changed. So Peru is a country that has had many constitutions in its long Republican history. So in 1978, there was a military dictatorship in Peru, and there was a general strike. There was a lot of movement and there was a call for a a legislative assembly to write a new constitution. And they wrote the 1979 constitution, which uh, was quite a left-leaning constitution and included a lot of social rights for citizens. And it also ensured that the state would oversee several industries. It also ensured that the state had to guarantee lots of rights uh, to have proper education, to have proper health. to have So this was a constitution that was very uh, social inclined. And the 1993 constitution had three main differences. One was it was a much simpler document, a shorter document that cut all those social provisions saying that the state only had the responsibility to ensure that these things were provided. It was a very neoliberal, constitution. But secondly, it was enabling for what's known as the economic chapter for neoliberalism to be the main creed and the main structure of the Peruvian state, that the market should be in charge of everything. And this includes, so there is still the idea that the state has the responsibility to oversee these markets, but it doesn't actually have any teeth and it doesn't have a responsibility to take action. So it also enabled education for profit in in both schools and higher education, health for profit, and uh, many issues that were problematic. But at the time, this was seen as what Peru needed after having had this very social inclined constitution previously. Now, the third issue, which I personally consider is the one that is most problematic, is the question of representation. So previously, most other proving constitutions had two chambers in parliament. And this constitution, um, the 1993 one, just has one unicameral parliament with 120 representatives. And when it was written, it was 120 representatives for all the country. So there was no regional representation. This has subsequently been changed, but the changes haven't really been entirely successful to achieve regional representation. There used to be two chambers, a lower chamber of deputies and a higher chamber of Senate, and that disappeared. Now there's just one. And that has meant that a lot of the ways in which the conflict between the legislative power and the executive power have happened Because there's only one level in the parliament, it means that decisions are taken very, very quickly. And we've seen that very much happening in this period when we have had several, they're not quite impeachment processes, but they're similar to impeachment, but they're declaring that the president is not morally fit to be president.
0: You mentioned earlier in our conversation that there was instability and guerrilla forces in opposition. What was Fuki Mori, Fujimori's, rather? Um, how did he respond to those guerrilla forces and who were they?
1: Well, this was the Shining Path guerrilla mainly, and they had started being a force in Peru from 1980. And they uh, were a very strange, very radical Maoist movement that believed that Peru would be changed into a Maoist country by the peasants rising up and changing uh, the country through blood. So it's a very, very radical messianic movement that had uh, been uh, active, as I say, between 1980 into the 1990s. Initially, uh, very radicalized in rural areas, but with the army intervening in the 1980s. And then when Fujimori came to power, they had already started their move from the countryside to the cities. And the idea was that they would uh, take over the cities. Also, throughout the second part of the 80s and into the 90s, they became more and more enmeshed with drug producing. So they were kind of became what Bush Sr. described as narco terrorists.
0: So did Fukimori like employ death squads and other forms of political violence against them and others?
1: Well, that's exactly why he is currently sitting in jail uh, for 25 years, because he did precisely that. So he, what he installed was known as the low-intensity war, but it meant uh, extermination squads. It meant uh, torture. It meant disappearing students. It meant very unsavory tactics. And also There was a possibility of uh, taking the head of Sendero Luminoso, his name is Abimael Guzman, and Fujimori's uh, secret police alerted him because they needed to have this threat of terrorism so that there would be an acceptance by the population once he took over. And that's that's exactly what he did. And eventually the leader was captured in 1992 at the tail end of 1992. And by 1993, Fujimori had defeated these terrorists.
0: Mm. I'm really shocked by reading about his uh, sterilization campaign against rural, mostly indigenous women, if I have it right. Can you tell me a little bit more about that campaign and, and why Fukimori enacted it?
1: So Fukimori had his first term between 1990 and 1995. And so he ran for presidency again in 1995 and got reelected. And one of those main things in his second period in power in 95 was the modernization of Peru and the fight against poverty. So one of the things that he did is he said, we need to fight poverty. So we need to make sure that there is a campaign that provides women with the possibility of having fewer children. He also decided to participate in in the Population Conference in 1994 and then the Women's Beijing Conference in 1995. He was, in fact, one of the only male heads of state who attended. And he took on board many of the feminist ideals of providing women with proper opportunities to choose the way they they wanted to have their families. And the whole idea was that voluntary sterilization would be included in the government-sanctioned and financed options for women to decide their fertility. So in a very neoliberal way, Fujimori himself as a mathematician and his ministers of health developed a program where there were incentives given for doctors and nurses to sterilize more and more women and men. They always went with the guise of this being voluntary, but they went specifically targeting areas where there were indigenous people who didn't know how to read and write or who were not provided the information in their own language or who were told that if they didn't go undergo the procedures, they would not be uh, registering their children, they would not be receiving food. So there was a, a very big stake, but there was also a carrot that if they did undergo the procedures, they would receive benefits. So there was a very complex web of things happening, and also quotas for doctors and nurses, numbers of people that they had to sterilize in particular regions. So, Fujimori and his ministers decided these are the areas where we have a lot of poor people, and these are the targets that we have for these particular areas.
0: Did Fujimori sell this policy in explicitly eugenic and racist terms?
1: No. In fact, he did the contrary. He saw this as an empowerment of women.
0: Throughout this whole period, he was leader until 2000, right? Where was his daughter, Kieko Fujimori?
1: One of the things that happened early on in his period in power is he was married to another woman of Japanese descent, Susana Iguchi, who from very early on decided that she did not like the way he and his family were acting. So very early on, she denounced his sisters of appropriating donations that the Japanese were making to Peru, mainly secondhand clothes, and uh, profiting from the um, largesse of the Japanese community. So she became persona non grata very early on in his regime, and he started implementing, according to her, electroshock treatment, keeping her chained, torturing her, and... um, at some point decided to separate from her, divorce her. And at, um, at a very young age, I think she was 18 or 19, Keiko became the acting first lady. So she was next to her father throughout his period in power. Some of this time she spent studying abroad. She was in the United States for quite a while. And she would come to Peru every two or three weeks and receive somewhere around $10,000 in cash for her petty cash. So there's been a long discussion of how her life abroad was financed, what her responsibility as First Lady, how much she knew of how things were uh, happening, was happening. Because she was not just a child that was separated from what was happening. She was the acting First Lady.
0: Do we know anything about the relationship that she has with her, with her mom and given how acrimonious that was?
1: Well, I mean, things have changed, right? Because uh, Fujimori left for Japan in 2000. He found a new wife. And during Keiko's first campaign for presidency, when her father was in jail, she went around with her stepmother. And in subsequent campaigns, she's brought her mother because one of the accusations has been of her being bad daughter.
0: What was Keiko's campaign? How would you describe her, her ideology? I mean, she's, she's run a number of times, I guess. Uh, what was her most recent uh, campaign?
1: Well, I mean, she ran in 2011. In 2011, she ran very much as her father's daughter. In 2016, she ran trying to distance herself from her father. And in 2021, she ran again as her father's daughter, trying to kind of honor his legacy. So she's tried everything, really.
0: How would you describe her economic policy? Is she the kind of neoliberal old guard or what?
1: She seemed to be until she thought she might gain something by being a real populist. Towards the latter part of the second round campaign, she was pretty much promising everybody cash, like literally just Mm. cash particularly the regions that were never going to vote for her where there's a huge mining concern. She was saying, I'm going to give you direct access to the mining money. And people didn't believe her.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. Why didn't they believe her?
1: Because nobody trusts her. Because she says whatever (laughs) she needs to say to win or whatever she thinks she needs to say to win. So if you change your tune so many times, then there's, you know, not a lot of conviction in what you say.
0: So we've talked a lot about Keiko and Alberto, but tell me about Pedro Castillo and where he comes from and what his backstory
1: is. Pedro Castillo is a very interesting anomaly in Peruvian politics, but I would say politics more generally. I think there's very few countries in the world where someone who is such an outsider can become president. He is a rural school teacher. His parents didn't even know how to read and write. He comes from a small town outside a very small town. So he comes from a hamlet, really, in a province very far away from the centers of power. So the system in Peru, because of how it is that so many people can present themselves as candidates in the first round, and because there was such apathy and nobody really wanted to vote for any of them, he managed to rise into that. He had to struggle through life and work very hard to get his teacher training. He went to not a very prestigious university, but he managed to do that. He's a, obviously a very hardworking man. And obviously, he has the ability to talk to people. He has a charisma. He, he's very good at speaking in a public space, in a public plaza. He has a very simple language. He has a very simple message, and a message that people can relate to. And also, because he is such an outsider, he is not in any way tainted with all the corruption scandals that have characterized Peru for so long. His only real experience was as the head of the the teachers' union. And he led a a huge um, strike in 2017 that was quite successful. And that was his only claim to fame, The only reason that he managed to make it to where he's he's got is because a regional political party led by Vladimir Serron needed someone to front the candidacy because Serron, who had been a regional governor in the region of Junín, where he's from, has been convicted of uh, corruption. So he couldn't run. So this is where the similarity mm-hmm. with Fujimori comes. So they needed someone to front the campaign so that they would have people enter the legislative, so they would have representatives in parliament. So they said, well, this guy seems fine, he seems all right, we kind of agree on main things, and let's just invite him to be our candidate.
0: And so they never expected that he would do this well? Is that is that what you mean by the similarities? Nobody expected, they never expected. Yeah. In
1: February, he was polling at 1%.
0: Well, what accounts for this sort of meteoric rise then?
1: Well, that is the interesting question. The interesting question is, throughout the campaign, and most of the electorate was tired, the pandemic was had been, has been devastating in Peru, more in Peru than in many other places. So the electorate was tired and didn't like any of the options. The more centrist leftist or left-leaning centrists were demonized in the Lima press as being, you know, going to turn Peru into Venezuela or Cuba. It's always the same script. But nobody saw him coming. Nobody thought he would have any clout. And the first national debate, he suddenly became apparent to many people. He's like, who is this guy? He wears a hat. He has this uh, kind of very folksy uh, way of speaking. He's very simple. He speaks in a very simple way. And people started taking notice. And he had COVID very early on in the year. And he decided to do a very old-fashioned campaign going from plaza to plaza. And people started hearing him and saying, look, look at him. He's like us. He's someone we can relate to. And then talking to their friends, talking to their neighbors and who are you going to vote for? I don't like any of them, but I think that this guy at least is someone like me.
0: And that message was very simply, why do we have so many poor people in a rich country? Something to that effect?
1: The phrase is no more poor people in a rich country.
0: When he says that, no more poor people, what precisely is the economic policy that he's advocating?
1: Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) Nobody knows. And that's the fear right? Because we don't really know what's behind him. In the second round, he allied himself with a lot of these kind of more centrist leftists. But Mm -hmm. nobody really knows if that is a true alliance. It's one that's going to stand. Because Fujimori has not conceded, no transition has begun. So we don't really know what shape or form. A month later, we don't have any clue of what he's actually Mm -hmm. going to do.
0: What about on the question of the Constitution? I've seen some writing that says he wants a new one. He wants to make healthcare and some of these things that were rights, rights again.
1: That's right. And um, it's an interesting thing because for him, the Constitution, I think, is the biggest thing. And he's an educator and education seems to also be one of the things that he really wants to make a mark on. He's a rural teacher, so he wants that to, to change. But it is an open question how much political clout does he have to achieve this.
0: Right because his party has how many seats in the the legislative body like something like 30 or so. 31 that-
1: seats out of 130. Right.
0: So what can he do with that?
1: Well, very little, but he's uh, saying that he's going to try to do the constitutional change by a referendum. And uh, now then there's a whole discussion of the legality of that or how that's going to happen. And there's a lot of uh, nervousness because there's a, a feeling that that's what Chavez did and that maybe this is his way of following on Chavez's path. Or This is also what Morales did in, in Bolivia was uh, in Ecuador. So it's also what's happening in Chile. So the, there, there is a lot of nervousness around the constitutional reform. Now, if you ask me, I think that the economic issues are important and they're very central. But to me, I think that the issues of representation in the current system are much more problematic and need much more addressing through a new constitution than the economic aspect.
0: Are you excited for what Castillo represents or are you uh, worried?
1: I am worried and I am excited. I am excited because I do believe that it is time for Peruvians to rethink their constitutional arrangement. I do think that it's problematic that we have a constitution that was written by this uh, Fujimorista Congress in 1993 that has been partially patched up and fixed, but those fixes have ended up, I think, making it even worse if that is possible. So I am excited about that possibility, but I'm also worried about how possible it will be to make this happen. I am worried about how the possibilities for Castillo's government are actually going to materialize. I am also fearful that there will not be enough change and that that would also be a tragedy because there's so much expectation that there should be a change in Peru, and that there will be even more frustration if someone like him is unsuccessful.
0: That was Natalia Sobravia, professor of Latin American history at the University of Kent. What is neoliberalism? Some people will tell you it's not a real thing. It's an amorphous, undefinable thing that really just amounts to a leftist slur. But if you actually do the reading, you will see that it is not so vague and undefinable, at least according to Aldo Madariaga. Aldo is professor at the School of Political Science, Diego Portales University in Santiago, Chile. Aldo tells me that neoliberalism has a pretty clear and coherent set of ideals. It also has foundational books and specific university departments that you can point to. But the story is a little complicated, because like any ideology—socialism, anarchism, liberalism, you name it—it always has different manifestations and it changes over time. Aldo's book, Neoliberal Resilience, charts the surprising twists and turns in this intellectual and political history, especially in Latin America and in Europe. The typical story is that neoliberalism is a set of pro-business economic reforms advanced by Reagan-era politicians. It was then later tweaked by technocrats like Bill Clinton. But Aldo says that it is changing. It is starting to take on aspects of the right populist agenda. That's an agenda that brands itself as vaguely anti-capitalist and always directly appeals to the economically forgotten. Take Kieko Fujimori. Alberto's daughter. Like Natalia mentioned earlier, Kieco literally promised direct cash payments to citizens. Trump did this too. Maybe it's just kind of a populist veneer or a populist branding, because when you get right down to the cardinal values of the policy directions, it's neoliberalism. But Pedro Castillo, he's a true populist rejection of neoliberalism a left populist rejection.
3: He does represent a rejection of neoliberalism. Now, one has to be careful about what neoliberalism means. There are some general conceptions about what it is, and then countries adopt different sort of translate those principles, conceptions in different ways. So it's not a general rejection of neoliberalism. It's a rejection of the type of of sort of economic model that grew out in Peru. But doesn't only have to do with economics, also have to do with the state of, of politics in the country, which are related, of course, but it's a discourse of reaction towards something that is viewed as having had many ills on the population, but not proposing alternatives.
0: You described Alberto Fujimori to my producer, Mark, as something of a paradigmatic case of a kind of populist neoliberal which you know I think is super fascinating, the kind of merging of populist right-wing politics and neoliberalism that you have written about, which might sort of surprise people because most people don't think of those two things coming together. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. What kind of neoliberalism does Alberto Fujimori represent or did he represent when he was in power?
3: As a matter of very brief and very broad definition, you usually can recognize neoliberalism in terms of benefiting economic elites, benefiting business, making room for companies, for big business to make decisions, right? In more or less free markets. Fujimori was neoliberal because he was benefiting economic elites. He was benefiting businesses with his measures. And at the same time, having a discourse that was sort of anti-elite. This is a strange combination, but he was sort of trying to appeal to the people by saying we need to reestablish the the power to the people, there is a corrupt elite. But that elite in this case was viewed as the state apparatus, bureaucrats uh, making dirty deals, you know, corruption. So this is the elite in that discourse, right? The business elites were out of the condemnation that this
0: populist uh, discourse had at that moment. The business elites weren't targeted, but the, the state bureaucrats were targeted, basically, in his populist politics.
3: Right, exactly. And so a very strong uh, nationalist discourse, authoritarian discourse, law and order, these types of things usually go hand in hand with populism as well.
0: It seems to me that traditional conservatism and authoritarianism, that Alberto Fujimori represented seems antithetical to the kind of view of individual liberties, small government, and protecting the people from state overreach. How do you fuse things that, on first blush at least, seem kind of antithetical?
3: Right, I I think there's a misconception of what neoliberalism is. It's a different thing from liberalism, and they're actually not necessarily liberal. If you follow the intellectual roots, many of the people that that started thinking about this new concept or this new sort of project were very much against the use of collective power. Collective power against the elite, economic elites, companies, individual companies. And so what they opposed was mostly the use of that collective power against this they called economic liberty but they didn't oppose the use of state power for example to promote capital accumulation to subsidize big companies to bail out big companies etc cetera, etc cetera. so in a way this idea that neoliberalism is antithetical to the state is nowadays more and more rejected actually whenever you see it And whenever it has been applied or or implemented more thoroughly throughout the world, you see that the state has been crucial in doing this. And sometimes even through authoritarian regimes, outright dictatorships, military dictatorships, like in the southern cone of South America, Chile, Argentina, and and Uruguay, which were the first to start with this project. Chile, the most successful one in this sense. But they were outright military dictatorships. And throughout the world, even when it has been implemented in a democratic scenario, it has been in a democratic scenario with reduced sort of representation channels, with more executive powers for presidents or or prime ministers, etc. So, it actually, states have been crucial to impose neoliberalism,
0: let alone maintain it over time. Because it's so unpopular that it's not the kind of thing that popular will mobilizes around. Precisely. So I'm curious, like, let, let's name names. Is there a kind of um, text or theorist or group that you want to point to as an intellectual origin?
3: There's one particular group that I'm interested in, which is the Virginia School which is a group of intellectuals interested not necessarily on economic policy. So usually you would associate neoliberalism, again, with freeing markets and establishing, you know, deregulating uh, markets and etc. But this group of very influential intellectuals were more interested in the sources of power in society, how to change political power, political institutions, so that society, not just the economy, but society worked in a way to support neoliberalism in time.
0: Who were they? Would they be names that we recognize?
3: Yeah, 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 of course. A key figure there was James Buchanan
0: mm-hmm. from, from the University of Virginia.
3: Friedrich Hayek was involved as well. And, and there were several, you know, uh, there's uh, Richard Wagner also working with Buchanan. There's the whole school public choice that, that came out of that, that discussed uh, sort of the, the institutional underpinnings of the uh, politics and, and, and economic institutions,
0: basically. Some people would be perhaps more familiar with kind of the Chicago school, like um, a free market, libertarian kind of view and an economic focused one. You mentioned that the Virginia school is more focused on politics and society. So what, what are some of the similarities and differences between those schools of thought? In terms of similarities,
3: they were under the same umbrella project, which I call it's a political project in the end. It's it's a project to reshape society under certain principles, right? The, The key principle being economic liberty. But while the Chicago School were more interested in economic policy, the Virginia School was not that much interested in the specifics of economic policy, but much more on political institutions. So how do we make, how do we reshape our political order so that whatever we do in terms of economic policy, that is maintained over time. And they were targeting democracy and democratic institutions directly because they thought that democracy was tied to a type of dynamic that allowed representation to people And basically allowed different societal alternatives to be contested over and over in political competition, right? And what you need when you want to establish a hegemonic sort of principle for society is to shut that possibility, right? To reduce the possibility that those principles will be changed in the next election.
0: What was the view of the state? I mean, we've talked a little bit about how it's kind of a misnomer to think of. Neoliberals as wanting a small state or no state at all. They want a particular kind of state to serve a particular kind of interest, right? I mean, what what kind of political institutions did the Virginia School advocate for?
3: I think that there are more principles, and then concrete mm-hmm. experiences came out in in concrete examples around the world. For example, in terms of principles, they thought that you had to establish in the constitutions. Several principles that gave this minority veto power over whatever the normal political deliberations or, or representation would, would produce. So, for example, instituting non-elected veto powers in Congress or outside of Congress, or taking certain key policy domains out of the reach of Congress again, so that they couldn't be changed or changing the concrete representation principles in 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 electoral uh systems so there were different ways in which uh these concrete general principles were were translated in the case for example of of Chile which is often cited as one very key example in the world uh, establishing these principles um in the Constitution was established a political and electoral system that basically secured the right wing very close to Pinochet and, and all the neoliberal um, reforms done under the military uh, dictatorship of Pinochet. It, In practical terms, it gave these right wing uh, parties the half of seats in, in parliament. They did some what is called uh, gerrymandering. So they combined different districts, electoral districts, to boost the representation of those that were historically more biased to represent the right, like, for example, uh, more rural areas and and things like this, or reduce the the, the power of those more left-wing, working-class districts.
0: It strikes me as, you know, a set of kind of insidious tweaks that to properly understand in some way you have to almost like be a political science nerd. Like know about the instruments of government, gerrymandering, the representation in Senate, how things are voted. And hearing that, and hearing you describe the sort of the slate of things, I'm curious if this was essentially an act of deception. They wanted to obfuscate to the public what was actually happening, happening, and that their real goals ultimately they just weren't democrats. And if they had their way, they would want just a just a dictatorship.
3: I think they preferred a dictatorship than a democracy. And there are quotes, for example, by Hayek or by Buchanan himself. They say a democracy can rule with a lack of liberalism, using the state against the will of companies, and a dictatorship can rule with a complete respect for economic liberties. And he said, I don't remember whether it's Hayek or, or Buchanan, the, the quote I'm, I'm trying to cite, but he says something like this, you know. And, you know, I prefer a dictatorship that rules with respect for economic liberties than a democracy that doesn't re- respect economic liberties. That's, that's the... the oh, wow. So wow. it's very clear. It's very clear.
0: Mm. Your book is partly about Eastern Europe, as well, and about the way in which neoliberalism is so resilient through the ages. And I'm wondering if you can sort of like paint me a little picture through time and space, how it's it's changed. I mean, on my cursory kind of understanding of it, coming out of the 80s, sort of a small government, Reagan era sort of time, then going into the third way, and really morphing with the technocracy and the, the Democrats. And now, as we've been talking a little bit about, this sort of merging of neoliberalism and right populism, it's such a malleable ideology. I'm, is my historical sketch sort of accurate there, or could you sort of take me through how, how it's morphed over time? I think sometimes one gets a bit surprised about this
3: malleability. But if if you think carefully, every concept that you use in social science has this sort of, comes with varieties and with variants. And I think the trajectory in time of neoliberalism also has to do with the type of actors that were leading this project at different points in time. So at the beginning of transition in, in Eastern Europe, we were talking about that specific context. Those who were leading the most extreme neoliberal project were certain elites that had not been part of the communist regime. They had sympathies for the Montpellier Society, the type of collective thought that had been born in in that realm. Okay, so they were very close to to, to these ideas that we're talking about in terms of how to constrain democracy, to liberate, you know, companies. But then at some point, also, Different sets of, of mostly technocratic groups got involved in in and got sort of involved with this idea of reducing the power of the state and liberating markets and liberating companies. There were many intellectual roots in terms of what happened in the field of economics and how it changed towards a a, a near a sort of hegemony of neoclassical economics and, and saying, you know, the state can only do harm and sort of people that were not necessarily into the initial project of uh, constraining democracy were seeing the neoliberal project with good eyes because they thought this was the best for the economy, for development, for the best that these countries could do. And at some point, it was these sort of technocratic elites who were leading the project, actually. And this is what we call, usually we call third way, which were fairly left-wing people in in political terms, but were convinced by these economic ideas and and were convinced that the best that countries could do was just liberate their markets and and, and, and let companies uh, make the decisions. What we see currently is that these elites have been contested in power. People are fed up. With this type of technocratic governments, what has happened in Hungary, in Poland, is precisely this, sort of a reaction against this type of technocratic neoliberalism, which also implied in the case of Eastern Europe, for example, the openness to the European Union, embracing the values of the European Union, cosmopolitan, universalist values in terms of, for example, migration, socially liberal values, gay marriage and these type of things. For the people that are angry with the results of neoliberalism in Eastern Europe,
0: they see these two things as going together. Economic pains with social liberalism. Is Orban a rejection of neoliberalism, or is he sort of like taking pieces of it and morphing it to different Mm. ends?
3: As a phenomenon, it's a rejection. Mm. But what he's doing in practice is taking the other part, the part of the resentment with the socially liberal part of neoliberalism, or the previous version of neoliberalism, okay, and boosting that type of sentiment to establish himself in power. When you actually see what he's doing in terms of the economic policies or the type of alliances he's making, you see that he's not necessarily changing the the path of, of economic openness that and 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 the idea of leaving big companies decide mm. what happens in the economy. He's not doing that.
0: But it, it does strike me that there's kind of this like current of right populism that even if they don't actually act on these kind of anti-capitalist, anti-business talking points, they often sell themselves in that way. They often sell themselves as representing a tradition rather than an elite business interest. Isn't that quite sort of antithetical to the neoliberal project if they're selling it on terms that are like openly hostile to capitalism, for instance, even if in practice, it's not exactly all it's cracked up to be?
3: Well, it it may backfire. If those masses that you're trying to lure with your populist discourse eventually rise up, and, and you know create, create a social movement that go against capital, well, you're done because big capital are your allies. But what happens in reality is the type of mobilization that they use, the, the type of rhetoric, it does not necessarily allude to a collective actor. It's not the type of rhetoric that, for example, labor leaders use to organize labor as a collective actor. Populist, what they use, they mobilize a a very vague sense of of collective, of community. There's no community there. They appeal to individual people feeling a strain, feeling lost, uh, feeling left behind. And they touch different types of sentiments, a longing for order, a longing for tradition, a longing for security, very vague ones. When you see actually the economic sort of proposals, They're mostly very vague. They're wrapped in this idea of economic nationalism, but they're never, you know, they they never say, for example, we will use the state to create national champions, state companies that will compete with private ones or, you know, against big capital. They don't do this. And they have very concrete proposals when it comes to migration, when it comes to civil liberties, and this type of thing. So they use the rhetoric to promote a very specific
0: type of of project here. Does strike me as a, as a really risky bet because I think a lot of the um, energy that's mobilized behind you know these so called right populist it is because in fact they wrap themselves in the banner against things that are identified as neoliberalism like free trade and migration and the EU and etc cetera, etc cetera. and like it's it's not a It's not too long before the populace will feel uh, betrayed, one would think. But who knows where where that takes us. If that does in fact happen, if the populace does in fact become sort of betrayed by this new kind of hybrid, far-right neoliberal project, where do you think that takes neoliberalism? What's sort of like the next frontier of neoliberal thought?
3: Well, that's interesting because as you see, That may well happen, but what happens in the process, in the way, is that you completely disarticulated the political systems in those countries. So you disarticulated the opposition. You changed, uh, in many of these countries, you changed the institutional setup back towards including many authoritarian clauses, reducing the space of, of democracy again. So in a way, when and if the public realizes that they're betrayed, the open space for political alternatives is very reduced.
0: That is a scary thought. Maybe to, to kind of uh, transition and conclude here on, on something of a positive note, hopefully, where do you see the most exciting and effective resistance to neoliberal politics?
3: I think the best way to answer this is to look at the concrete process that is happening now in in Chile. We just mentioned it as the textbook case of neoliberalism, where, you know, economically, institutionally, it went a long way under this, and it was quite stable. There were very few challenges to this. And since 10 years, several social movements started to rise. There was no reaction from the political establishment because democracy in its representative dimension was very constrained. But then representation, you know, and social mobilization started from outside institutional channels. Social movements started to channel, to, to challenge, sorry, um, the political establishment in a way that in 2019, there was what, what is called now the uh, social unrest, social upheaval or, um, estallido social, um, social outburst, something like this would be the, the, the translation, which paralyzed the country for months. The, the state had to declare a state of emergency, take the, the military to the street. I mean, it was a huge conflict, social and political conflict, which went on and on, and, and the only alternative to bring back peace was to open up a process of constitutional change, precisely to redo everything, which is now underway. It just started the the process of drafting a new constitution. There was a, a referendum. There was an election of constituents. So there will be people elected to draft a new constitution for the first time in the history of the country. So even if you have this institutionalized neoliberalism with these tweaks, with these deceptive methods. Politics is always surprising.
0: That was Aldo Madariaga, professor at the School of Political Science, Diego Portales University in Santiago, Chile. Check out his book, Neoliberal Resilience, Lessons in Democracy and Development, from Latin America and Eastern Europe. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Epilonio. We had a research from David Mosscrop. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. As always, our theme song and outro is made by Mike Barber, and our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. And I am your host and editor, Gordon Kadik. You can send us your feedback by emailing the show, the address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. We are supported by our generous patrons, thanks to our most recent one, Wolfgang Tolkien. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash dartsandletters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by academic research grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. The lead academic advisor on our project is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. Special thanks also this week to Professor Max Cameron. Thanks for listening. Check back in next week.